Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And hey, this is the 100th film selection on Weird House Cinema, and we're we're marking the occasion by finally entering a new century, a new millennium of film. Um, we are uh, we are going to be talking about uh, our most recent film yet, the 22 year old Jason X. Now it's Friday the 13th on the day this episode releases, uh, and of course it being our 100th episode. I, I feel like these facts were significant, Rob, in your suggestion of Jason X for, for today's episode, but I think it's an excellent choice. Not so much because I think it's like a great movie or one that I am <laughs> going to tell people they must go out and see, like I would say about Inframan or Ship of Monsters or some of the other ones we've uh, we've looked at that are just... You know, you just want to share that joy with the world. It's not really in that category, but I think it will be fantastic fun to talk about. And I also think it's a great choice because it's a movie with a literal three word plot summary. What's the elevator pitch on Jason X? Was well, Jason in space, right? It is known character in previously unexplored setting. Very Dracula goes west. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's looking back on it, it's easy to think this was a no brainer. Of course, Jason goes into space. Uh, but another thing about this movie is that not only does the character uh, known to us by, by the point this movie came out go to a new location, the character is himself changed by the journey uh, because this is the movie where Jason becomes a cyborg. One of the taglines featuring uh, on posters for Jason X was evil gets an upgrade. Yeah, it's um, it, I mean, there's so much fun in this movie because it is like a character from one genre stepping into another genre, bringing all of his own tropes with him, 
but then also encountering all the tropes of the genre that he is stepping into. Uh, so it's, it's there's so many ideas. Like you can imagine that the uh, the writing process and the brainstorming process for this was was pretty rich with ideas. It's a ten car pileup of genre cliches. <laughs> now I thought, uh, Rob, you you found the link to Roger Ebert's uh, half star review of this film. It was not even a whole star for him. Uh, and I thought it might be good by by referencing some of the things he says about this. He begins by quoting a line of dialogue from the film, which is, this sucks on so many levels. <laughs> in the movie, literally referring to a hull pressure breach in a spaceship where uh, characters are at the, the risk of being sucked out into uh, into the void. But Ebert goes on to say, quote, rare for a movie to so frankly describe itself. Jason X sucks on the levels of storytelling, <laughs> character development, suspense, special effects, originality, punctuation, neatness and aptness of thought. Only its title works. <laughs> now, I think that's that's maybe a little overly harsh, but I mean, I, I want to recognize that my my appreciation for this movie is an appreciation that is tempered by the context of my relationship with the rest of these movies and my knowledge of horror cliches. Uh, I, I'm not going to like defend Jason X deeply on its own terms or say, well, no, it's actually good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, this review actually gave me pause when I was revisiting this film as a potential weird house selection, because I, I look back and I saw, oh, gosh, half a star. I don't, as I've said before, I don't always agree with, with Ebert's reviews. Sometimes I agree with them, you know, pretty strongly. Sometimes we're on, on different planets. And I was suspecting it might be the case here, but I was like, maybe there's something I'm misremembering about this film. And I really need to go back and view it again before I even suggest to Joe that we we cover it. Um, uh, yeah, I ended up disagreeing with Ebert on on a lot of this, but at the same time, I'm guessing kind of like you. I can't say I'm not going to defend Jason X on, on storytelling, character development, or any of these other categories either. Uh, beyond this, you know, Ebert notes that the movie opened on the 16th anniversary of the Chernobyl meltdown, <laughs> um, and then he says the movie is basically a rehash of Alien. Where I think that's quite unfair. Only about a third of it is a rehash yeah. of Alien, and the other parts are transporting Friday the Thirteenth tropes into space. And then the last third of it is a rehash of Aliens, the sequel to Alien. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, you know, the, so the monster stalks crew members in, in in dark spaceship corridors, picks them off one by one. You can see the similarity, except here, of course, the monster is not an original design like the Xenomorph, but the uh, by the year 2001, quite familiar figure of Jason Voorhees, a big lug in a hockey mask with a machete who just kills people for some reason. One of the strangest things about how people reacted to this movie when it came out is. Uh, is that I remember, and I was just in high school at the time, but I remember some people being like, Jason in space, okay, they've <laughs> gone too far. That's just silly. You know, like as if there were an important core of realism and seriousness that the Friday the 13th franchise had maintained up until this point, only to cast it aside by going, going full Ed Wood and allowing an undead revenant to board a rocket ship. I would say not only is this premise untrue, I think sending Jason into space and turning him into a nanobot cyborg actually elevates the series in a whole. And I want to sort of explain how I mean that in, in a roundabout way. Uh, but first, I, I want to acknowledge, as we did in our previous episode on uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. So this is our second film 
in the uh, Friday the 13th franchise we've covered. Uh, despite the fact that these movies are, for the most part, I admit, quite poorly made uh, by most measures, maybe apart from makeup effects in, in some installments like, like the first one and so forth, um, and despite the fact that they were nearly universally panned by critics, Friday the 13th was and is immensely popular. Up until just recently, uh, I think it was the highest grossing horror franchise in history, and I think for a while, certainly in the 80s and 90s in the United States, if you went up to a random person on the street and you said, think of a horror movie villain, I suspect the answer you would be most likely to get would not be Dracula or Frankenstein, or even Pazuzu, it would be Jason Voorhees. For mm -hmm. some time, the hockey mask became the symbol of the horror genre. Which is crazy, right? If you're approaching this from a from a sports standpoint, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, I mean, it, it's it's kind of weird that such a thing ended up in these movies to begin with. I mean, this is just a piece of sports equipment. Yeah. So a film critic like Roger Ebert or, or any number of others might think of the Friday the 13th movies as uninteresting, predictable or formulaic, kind of mindlessly violent and puerile, uh, just generally ranking low in, I don't know, artistic innovation and, and stuff compared to a lot of other great spooky horror movies uh, that, that, that do much better on those counts. And I, in, in fact, I have no way to disagree with them. But something about these movies kept audiences coming back. And uh, as I think I also said in the, the Jason Takes Manhattan episode, I find the Friday the 13th movies and movies like them kind of psychologically revealing, like in the same way that it is revealing when people tell you about their dreams. It's mm. like you're peeling back some membrane that usually kind of filters your thoughts for maturity and uh, uh, tastefulness before you share them with other people. And instead, you're just looking straight into the filmmaker's id. Now, when it comes to the, the predictable or formulaic nature of these movies, uh, you can chart a history where the series does sort of keep trying new things in a way. Uh, like in parts two through four, th those are all in a way, just pretty much the same. Jason is a mad slasher who attacks a house full of misbehaving 18 to 20 somethings. Uh, then that, that kind of gets played out. Uh, they start switching up the formula in part five. There is a twist where it's not Jason at all, but it's a copycat killer in part six. They really switch things up by introducing the supernatural uh, because it's only in part six that Jason now is a reanimated corpse with powers that seem to include super strength, invulnerability, and teleportation. In part seven, they switch it up again. This is the one where they have Jason face off against a final girl with the power of telekinesis. So it's kind of Jason versus Carrie. Uh, that oh, one's kind great. of... That Love one's that pretty one. fun, yeah. Uh, part 8, which is the one we previously covered on the show, they try to switch it up by changing the location. So it, this is Jason Takes Manhattan, a movie that is mostly about a boat. They should have called it Jason Takes <laughs> Boat. Uh, but then uh, he has a, a few brief uh, scenes in Vancouver, which yeah, and there's one where they actually shot it in Times Square. Also a lot of fun. Yes, and another piece of context outside of the... Uh, the fictional movie canon, sort of the real world context, is that up until about part seven, the series was a money printing machine. You know, you could make a movie on the cheap for like two or three million dollars and then make 20 million dollars in ticket sales. But uh, after part seven, box office returns started to become more disappointing. I think Jason Takes Manhattan had a slightly... Uh, 
more disappointing return, and that trend would continue with the next movie. So in part nine, Jason goes to hell. Things get really weird in a bad way. There's some plot about like there's like a little, little rat snake demon that lives inside Jason <laughs> and can jump into other people's mouths and possess them so they become Jason, but they just look like whatever actor it's jumped into. Um, but uh, li- like many people, I I find Jason goes to hell just unwatchable, excruciatingly gross, unpleasant, hideous visuals, awful music, not really much redeeming at all, except for uh, some some brief but excellent weird vibes from the actor Stephen Williams, who plays a bounty hunter on the trail of Jason Voorhees, which is a hilarious concept to begin with. Uh, but I also believe that he's the character who introduces the concept of a magic dagger to the series canon. That one would be, and I don't think I've ever watched Jason Goes to Hell in full, but uh, I've just seen like some clips that you've sent me. But like this one seems to be a case where the title really works. Like Jason Goes to Hell, that that, that sounds like a bold new direction. That sounds like Jason is venturing into the underworld, into the afterlife. There are going to be demons. Who knows what else it's going to contain? No, it's just another slasher movie, but like grosser and less funny than than previous ones. Hmm. And most of the time, Jason doesn't look like Jason. He just looks like somebody walking around, and then they look in a mirror, and it's Jason's reflection. Oh, man. Like, they couldn't even have the possessed individual have this, like, this compulsion to put on a hockey mask or something? Not that I recall. So that one's really bad. Um, But then, so here we're coming up on the 10th film in the franchise. Uh, Money returns have started being not so good. Um, Not like the series ever had like real artistic integrity, but I think even from a critical appraisal point of view, like the movies are getting less good. Um, So the concept was relatively empty and vulgar to begin with. And attempts to vary the formula have been made. And the last movie is just this anti-fun bucket of slop. So what what are you going to do next? What are you going to do? Where can you go from here? And I think you've got a couple of options, especially at the time this was made, because they're developing this in the late 90s. Uh, this is after Scream comes out. So one option you have is you could sort of do what Wes Craven did with Scream, do the movie equivalent of the mirror self-recognition test and create a Mm -hmm. film that acknowledges or even satirizes the conventions of the genre to which it belongs. But another option is to just spread the wings of absurdity and take flight. And Jason X does a little bit of the former, but more of the latter. And in doing so, I think despite the fact that it's not actually a great movie, it performed a kind of retroactive benediction upon the earlier films, acknowledging that, yes, these movies like have always been exactly this ludicrous. Jason X made the earlier movies feel less violently <laughs> sadistic and more like overt Grand Guignol and camp. It is the space buddies phase of the property. Uh, you know, Jason X breathes this innocence back into the subject matter, a kind of stupid innocence. <laughs> and Friday the 13th becomes what it was always meant to be. And Personally, I think they should have kept going in this direction and made movies where Jason becomes Santa Claus. Like in the Tim Allen sense, he is uh, caught by the Santa Claus and he's forced to become St. Nicholas and deliver presents. Or he's drafted by the NFL according to Airbud style loopholes. But alas, <laughs> that is not what we got. I'm to understand that the uh, the, the pitch meeting for, for or, the, or maybe not the pitch meeting, but the initial brainstorming for Jason X involved a, a number of different concepts. 
Like, I think that like they talked about doing like like Chris, uh, like what if they did uh, Jason in winter? You know, like it's Crystal Lake uh, camp, but it's winter time. So I don't know. Uh, Jason gets to kill people with um, icicles or something. Uh, <laughs> sounds pretty solid, but they didn't they didn't do that, and they started coming up with these crazier ideas. And part of the reason they ended up going with something futuristic was that they knew that Jason versus Freddy was more or less in the pipeline, and that that was going to be coming up more or less next. So they didn't want to do anything that would get in the way of that. I don't know why you need hmm. to get too worried about that. <laughs> Clearly, like logic film to film in the, the Friday the 13th series. Well, weirdly, I would say so far, the films actually did maintain basic continuity. Like okay. they all acknowledge the ones that had come before. Once you get Jason X, that kind of all goes out the window. And I think that may have been intentional. It may have been like, well, this one is going to get so absurd and go so far afield that audiences will no longer expect the films that follow to maintain continuity with it. Yeah, like this is this is shooting so far ahead into the future that it doesn't matter what the next 10 Friday the 13th movies consist of. But to your point, it's a, it, it seems kind of shocking that they didn't keep going uh, in this vein with, with Jason, that we didn't get the Santa Claus or the NFL uh, concept or something equally ridiculous. It's really a shame we, we did not get that stuff. But uh, I should also note one last thing. Despite everything I've just said about my own opinions, Jason X was, of course, also panned by critics, not just Ebert, but generally, and also did very poorly at the box office. So it did not save the franchise in terms of money returns. Uh, it was also released at a very weird time. It came out November 2001, which I don't know who wanted to see a Jason movie then. It's it's kind of weird to figure out where people stand on this movie, because on, on one hand, this is a movie that I had a favorable opinion of uh, and still have a, a favorable opinion of. I think it's a fun film. It's a film that has been recommended to us for Weird House before. People have written in and said, you should do Jason X. And mm-hmm. or if we said we were going to do a Friday the 13th, they're like, oh, is it Jason X? So, um, you know, it, it has its followers. When I go on to... Uh, letterbox.com and I pull up our episode list uh, of the different films that we've covered on Weird House. If I sort by popularity, it is the fifth most popular film that we've talked about. Hmm. And yet at the same time, you go somewhere like IMDb and I know IMDb user ratings um, are not not the gold standard perhaps, but it only has a 4.4 out of 10 on there. So I guess enough people think it is bad or or actively dislike it but it's hard to tell how much of that too is like it's the sort of so bad it's good sort of view of things and even mm-hmm. though they're giving it a low rating they still have a higher opinion of it well i think it's the kind of movie where just the concept like just the sheer force of the concept and the fact that this concept was followed through on to production and release is enough to take it like most of the way there like at that mm-hmm. point you're not super concerned like uh, you know, is the script really that clever? Like, are, are the actors good? It's just kind of like, it's Jason in space and they actually made it. That's not just a joke. <laughs> and the, the crazy thing about it is that it's the sort of concept where it, it could easily work better as a trailer than a movie, but because the energy, it might be hard to keep that energy up, but I feel like the movie does keep that energy up. They're able to actually keep you engaged with this ludicrous concept uh, throughout the run. So speaking of, uh, let's let's hear the trailer audio. You're going to hear a lot of the the snappier lines from this film in the trailer. Oh, 
In the year 2455, on a routine training mission, a team of students is about to discover a life form frozen in time. Wow. They're on their way back. Prepare for docking and power up the lab. You brought them on board? Everything's under control, ma'am. He's an unstoppable killing machine. Guys, it's okay. He just wanted his machete back. How do we get off the ship? I don't know. Look, we're going to be all right. What? Are you high? Uh-oh. <gasps> He's here. You have got to get them out of there. Hey, Slappy. I think we're finally okay. that you've got to be kidding me oh wow he's been modified oh you think you guys might want to run all right and uh before we keep moving on here, I'm just going to go ahead and mention, if you want to watch Jason X, you can watch it most places. You can buy it or stream it digitally pretty much anywhere. You can pick it up as a physical Blu-ray or a DVD, though I don't think it's received any kind of really glowing um, re-release or anything. I don't, To my knowledge, there haven't been any really crazy special editions of this film. Maybe I'm wrong, and, and maybe uh, in the future we'll get something like that. Well, there's a, there's a really good... Um full full series disc pack of uh friday oh, the 13th out by scream go. factory or shout factory uh, whatever you call it um but uh but yeah i i don't know if it has a standalone release of that type okay yeah i kind of forgot about the elaborate friday the 13th full series releases like for example the version of it i watched is the disc from that pack and uh, it begins with an optional introduction of Kane Hodder the man who plays Jason he says to the audience uh, he says please enjoy the film as you watch it or I will kill you (laughs) shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Well, shall we get into the people involved in this film? All right. So uh, at the top of the list here, we have the director, James Isaac. James Isaac lived 1960 through 2012. As a special effects guy, uh, Isaac's work goes all the way back to 1983's Return of the Jedi, on which he was a creature effects technician. Hmm. He followed that up with helping to make the Gremlins in 1984 as part of the Creature crew. And subsequent special effects credits include 1985's Enemy Mine, 1987's House 2, The Second Story, 1990's Look Who's Talking 2, 1995's Virtuosity, and David Cronenberg's existence in 1999. Ah, uh, okay. Here's the Cronenberg connection. We, we'll, we'll come back to that a couple times as we move down the cast list. Uh, but, ooh, Virtuosity, isn't that the one that had, uh, oh, what's his name? It had uh, Australian man. Uh, oh, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe strutting while staying alive plays on the soundtrack. Yeah, he's like a 3D printed, blue blooded uh, super clone of all the serial killers ever. And Denzel Washington has to hunt him or something. <laughs> I think I watched it on TV many years ago. Well, um, uh, like, like you say, though, Isaac worked on Existence, uh, but this wasn't the only time he worked with Cronenberg. He did Creature Effects on The Fly in 86, and he was project supervisor on his 1991 film Naked Lunch. Other special effects credits include 89's Deep Star 6, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, who was the original Friday the 13th director and a producer on Jason X. That was one of those 1989 underwater peril or horror movies that we've talked mm -hmm. about on the show before. Uh, th that is the one that I mainly recall for a scene where Miguel Ferrer uh, 
jumps into an escape pod to get out of the deep sea base and then does rapid explosive decompression. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I watched this one on an airplane at one point, and I don't remember. <laughs> I think I was kind of out of it when I watched it, but it has a big space bug in it. Uh, no, it's not a space bug. It's a, uh, it's a deep, deep sea bug, but it has a big bug in it. Uh, they get attached. Is it a giant killer clam, I think? Do they? Is there a giant <laughs> clam? Something oh, like man. That. It's, all, it's all kind of a dream to me. Okay, <laughs> It is some sort of killer mollusk from the depths. Um, oh, and Isaac also worked on 1990s arachnophobia. I don't want to be unkind, but it's interesting to me that he did visual effects on all these movies with great visual effects. Um, and apart from like one special effect that is very good and widely acknowledged as very good, I feel like the effects in Jason X are not great. And part of that may be, I mean, there's obviously the digital problem, which yeah. Ebert was was very uh, vocal about. There are a number of, of digital effects in here. In fact, I think this is the first time in the Friday the 13th series where we have some digital blood effects, mm. which I know um, film fans and gorehounds alike uh, tend to dislike in their films. I would not consider myself a gorehound, but I do not uh, enjoy that nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, Isaac, uh, though, uh, how did he become a director? Well, it's a, a similar scenario that we've seen in other cases. There is a there is a film, 1989's House Three: The Horror Show, set Lance Henriksen and Brian James in it, and the director's chair was vacated uh, due to uh, some reason or another, and so Isaac stepped up and directed the the rest of the thing. And then he did Jason X, and he followed this up with just two films before his untimely death. He did 2006's Skinwalkers. I think I saw part of this one. And then 2008's Pig Hunt, which is, I believe, a killer or mutant pig movie. Mm. Oh, alongside the uh, the likes of that Russell Mulcahy movie that's basically like Australian Jaws meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but the Jaws part has a pig instead of a shark. Oh, man. It's kind of it's still kind of alarming that we haven't done a Russell Mulcahy film yet on Weird House. We will. <laughs> All right, let's get to the screenplay credit. Uh, also an acting credit because this guy also plays the character Dallas in this. It's Todd Farmer, born in 1968. This was his first screenwriting credit and his first acting role, and he's gone on to act and write in a string of horror movies, including the 2009 remake of My Bloody Valentine. He was also one of the writers on the 2011 Nick Cage film Drive Angry. I already mentioned uh, some of the, uh, uh, the the other possibilities that came up, and these are uh, for this film that Farmer has mentioned in interviews. Another one that he mentions is Jason Takes the Middle East. What? At least explored to some degree as a concept. I'm glad they did not go in that direction. That I can't awful. imagine. That sounds <laughs> terrible. But also, I guess it makes sense that around that time they were, they were thinking of this. Uh, but yeah, thankfully, they did not go in that direction. But two ideas that they mentioned were Jason Blade Runner and Jason Alien, which uh, obviously it seems like some of the ideas from those two buckets ended up in this picture. Yes, this film has both a replicant and a, a monster loose on a spaceship. So, yeah. The monster, of course, is Kane Hoder, like we said, who plays Jason Voorhees. And credit is playing Jason Voorhees slash Uber Jason. Um, this is Cyber Jason uh, that you know we get. I mean, he's in the trailer. You, you know what's going to happen. Uh, he's going to be upgraded into some sort of uh, half-mechanical, cybernetic Superman killer. Uh, but uh, we, we profiled um, 
Kane on the uh, the Jason Takes Manhattan episode. But yeah, basically, born 1955, stuntman, turned stunt coordinator and actor with uh, stunt and acting credits going all the way back to the 1970s. Um, he didn't start playing Jason till New Blood in 1988, but then subsequently appeared as him in three more Jason movies. Uh, but before New Blood, he'd appeared as an actor in such films as House 2 and Alligator, playing the alligator, uncredited. And he's done stunt work in The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. He also did Leatherface stunt work in TCM 3. And he played Freddy's gloved hand at the end of Jason Goes to Hell. So Jason is a non-speaking role, but but Kane Hodder brings a lot of... Uh performative posture to the character like he really kind of signals jason's inner life just in the way he sort of like heaves his chest as he breathes or turns his shoulders in his face oh yeah absolutely we 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 talked about this a good bit with jason takes manhattan he has he has it's easy to dismiss the man behind the mask and say well that's not important but it is a great physical performance agreed our main protagonist, our, I guess she's kind of our final girl, though this movie kind of flips the script enough that you don't really have the, the final girl scenario going on here. But uh, the, the character that, that, that hangs out the longest alongside Jason in this film is the character Rowan, played by Lexa Doig. Yeah, she's kind of different than, than the standard Friday the 13th final girl um, in that she's not like the uh, the smart, well-behaved youth among a bunch of party people. She instead is from literally a different century. Yeah, but in that, I guess, because I guess one of the ideas in the other Jason films is the good girl, the final girl, is also uh, more traditional. She's not one of these new youth that are so problematic. And in this, yes, she's very um, traditional because she's from 400 years ago. That's right. Uh, and she's a, some kind of scientist. She's like the director of the Crystal Lake Research Facility, whatever that mm-hmm. is. We, we never find out what her research specialty is uh, other than maybe cryogenics. Yeah. <laughs> so she ends up essentially being our time traveling final girl. Lexa Doig, uh, a Canadian actor who started out on such TV shows as The Hidden Room and Tech War, but eventually went on to act on such shows as Earth Final Conflict, The Chris Isaac Show, Andromeda, The 4400, Stargate SG-1, Supernatural, Smallville, and Continuum. Uh, She played Talia Al Ghul on TV's Arrow, and she has a major role on the Chucky TV show, which I have not watched, but my friend uh, Dave Streepy tells me that it is great. And uh, yeah, she's she's solid in this. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but she may be the first lead actor of Asian descent in a Friday the 13th movie. I don't know, but I I agree. She's solid in this. I mean, no roles in this movie are really written (laughs) with enough panache to like really give the actors anything to grab onto. But Mm -hmm. uh, she does great with what's there. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it is the, the character that at least for a while very much is the the one warning everybody like you're doing what you still have jason on the ship etc and so that energy propels her for a good good bit of the run here yes we also have a character by the name of professor low played by jonathan potts born in 1964 this is the sleazy professor that is leading this excursion to old earth we'll explain all this in a bit uh that ends up resurrecting jason Voorhees. For for greed, I don't know why he's a professor. He doesn't do anything professorly. I think it was just like 
you know, an excuse to have a cast full of 18 to 24 year olds, as there often are in these, you know, in the Friday the 13th movies are like the students. And so I guess, well, there should be a professor. But he what's he a professor of? He just seems to be like a grave robber. The professor of Earth Studies, I believe. Earth One Studies. <laughs> really? Is that it? Yeah. Oh, OK. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's an archaeologist, but also sleazebag. Um, yes. Now, uh, Jonathan Potts himself, again, Canadian actor, has done a ton of TV, especially Canadian TV, over the years, including The Hitchhiker in 89. He was the voice of Link on the Legend of Zelda TV series. The, okay. He, yeah, uh, he was on wait, Forever. Hold on a second. There was a <laughs> Legend of Zelda TV series? Uh, yeah, apparently there was. I don't remember it, I, but he... He did the voice. He was also a voice on a Super Mario series. So I don't know if these were uh, Japanese productions that were then uh, exported uh, maybe to the, the North American market. And then they just you know brought in. I mean, that's probably what it was, right? Was it uh, the Super Mario Super Show? He may have done that one. I think he's credited on that one. But mainly he's the voice of, of Link on the Legend of Zelda TV series. Okie dokie. Yeah. But anyway, also such credits as Forever Night the Canadian vampire series that many, oh, yeah. many of us probably remember. That one's big in my memory as like a thing I would watch on hotel cable when my family went <laughs> on vacation. Yeah. It's one I remember as being like one of those shows that's on at strange times to watch TV when there's nothing else on and you just find yourself watching part of forever night, but, but not being drawn into forever night. Uh, but also another show pretty much fits the same bill kung fu the legend continues mm -hmm. uh, but he was in due south he was in russell mulcahy's 1999 film resurrection alongside christopher uh, lambert uh, he was on uh, queer as folk he was in the 2010 film devil he was on the strain he was in supernatural working moms and the comey rule Oh, I've not seen much of that but i would like to see how this actor would be used in a russell mulcahy production uh in this, he plays a greedy, sleazy professor, and uh, I don't know if there's all that much to say about the part. Like like I said, about basically none of the characters are all that interestingly written. Right, and it's it's not an interesting performance either. Like this, <laughs> he's, he's, I think it's safe to say he's done better in plenty of other places. Now, one character that is a fun addition to uh, the lineup here is the cyborg KM-14, uh, played by Lisa Ryder, born 1970. Okay, now here they're kind of injecting something into the movie. This is something we never expected to see, Jason versus a robot. Yeah, and it, and it's it's great that they went there. They they didn't hold back. They're like we're putting Jason in the future on a spaceship. Should we also have him uh do battle with uh, with an attractive female cyborg? And they said, "Yes, of course we should do that. Why why would we set this up if we're not going to give that to the viewer?" Also, I detect, like, once she goes into Jason battle mode, her character seems strongly, at least aesthetically, Matrix-influenced with, like, mm. the gunplay and the kung fu and the outfit. That's right. Th this movie's post-Matrix. Anyway, Lisa Ryder is a Canadian actor, still very active, uh, but she also played a computer woman on TV's Andromeda, <laughs> and other TV credits include Earth Final Conflict, Forever Night, and The Strain. I hope it, there are going to be a number of these titles that keep coming up. It's kind of the same scenario I, I encountered a lot watching 90s episodes of The Outer Limits. Uh, you have this, this, this talented pool of Canadian actors, but they appear in a lot of these different Canadian productions. Yeah, this is the thing that seems to be emerging as we look at all the people here. It's just Canada, Canada, Canada. 
it's it's very yeah it's a very canadian film um it reminds me a lot of outer limits in many respects because outer limits was a series that was filmed in canada featured mostly canadian actors had often really good practical effects but often uh really underperforming digital effects yes and uh, and i would say the digital effects on some episodes uh, maybe many episodes of of outer limits when they really went for it were worse than anything we see in this film. Wow. But sometimes they also didn't lean as heavily on it and so forth. Okay, but so uh, this movie has not just a, uh, I guess in switching it up, it, it doesn't have a final girl. It has more of a final boy. There's kind of a good boy who's like nice in contrast to all of the other young characters, right? Would you say? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we have Sunarin, played by Chuck Campbell, born 1969. He's He's a robot technician. He's also the robot's boyfriend. He is he's the boyfriend <laughs> of uh, of KM14. Yeah. And um and and he's I guess he's also the nerd character. Like he's yeah. the good boy nerd of the film. But not the kind of doomed nerd. I mean th- there's two different kinds of nerds who show up in a Friday the 13th ensemble. There is the nerd who you see as clearly marked for death by mm-hmm. Jason, and then there's the kind of sweet nerd who will make it to the end credits. Yeah, yeah, which I guess kind of it it shows how the nerd character in cinema progresses over the years, where Mm -hmm. it's this this character of pure mockery uh, and pity becomes this character that is like, I think uh, for many fans, like we realize, oh, well, that is us. And so (laughs) maybe this character should survive. We should focus on the survivability of this character as opposed to anything else. We got to flatter the audience, which is in this case, a theater full of nerds. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, myself included. Though I did not get to see it on the big screen, I, I probably saw this on DVD. Uh, but at any rate, Campbell, um, his other TV credits include Stargate Atlantis, and he also had a small role as a customer. I'm not sure which customer in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Ooh, and then we have another fun member of the cast here. Peter Minsa plays Sergeant Brodsky. This is our head space marine. Aboard yeah. the oh, the ship's called the Grendel. If I'm the Grendel, yes, yeah, the Grendel, yeah. lead space machine on the Grendel, Sergeant Brodsky here, Space Marine, Space Marine. Yes, what I say, machine, space, space machine. No, but he is a machine. He is because <laughs> he is a, he is quite a physical specimen, uh, and I think a charismatic, fun performance. Like it's, I feel like it's impossible to not like Peter Mensa in this movie. I agree totally. Once again, there's not a lot to this character on the page, like basically for all the characters, but Peter Mensa brings a lot to the role. He's he's just very charming um, and delivers even lines that would be cringy off the lips of another actor with with, you know, a, a good sense of fun. Yeah, I think he's a solid action movie acting presence, and uh, and it is very likable in the film. Um, he's a Ghanaian English actor who uh, gamers will probably recognize for his voice and likeness as Zach Hammond in 2008's Dead Space, the original Dead Space video game. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's a part of the remake that they're putting out uh, soon. But hey, he, Vince has been busy with other things because his uh, TV credits include Earth Final Conflict, Highlander, the Raven, that's the spinoff. <laughs> okay. Um, Star Trek Enterprise, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, uh, the Spartacus TV show uh, or TV shows is a big one. He had a recurring character on those uh, on those series. 
uh, let's see, he was on True Blood, Sleepy Hollow, The Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, on the film front, he was in 2000's Bruiser, the George Romero film. Oh, and uh, a lot of people remember him from 2006's 300, in which he played the Persian messenger who gets kicked down a well. This is, of course, the famous This is Sparta scene. Oh, bummer. How dare you kick Peter Minza down in a well? Sparta sucks. <laughs> they uh, Maybe they felt bad about it, and that's why they brought him back for 300 Rise of an Empire, a movie that I, I watched like a minute of in an airplane once. Mm. Oh, but he was also in 2008's The Incredible Hulk, 2009's Avatar. Um, he was in The Scorpion King, uh, colon, Book of Lost Souls from 2018, Ooh. and Snake Eyes from 2021. So he's been a very busy man over the years. He's got a great moment where the, the sleazy professor is trying to talk him into uh, taking Jason alive. And, uh, you know, he keeps offering him increasing sums of money. And then at one point he seems to acquiesce to like, OK, yeah, give me five hundred thousand dollars and we'll, we'll take Jason alive. And then he walks away to his grunts and says to them, OK, professor wants me to take him alive. So, uh, you know, after you blast him to pieces, put one in his leg. So it looks like we tried. <laughs> Yeah, he's just he's just a good character. He has good moral fiber. And correct me if I'm wrong on this, because your knowledge of the, the, the Jason movies far surpasses my own. But I feel like this character, uh, the sergeant here, is unlike anything Jason's gone up against before. Like this is a strong, physically capable and trained guy that he has to combat. Yeah, basically. Uh, well, I mean, so it, do do I want to discuss the details of Jason Goes to Hell? So Jason <laughs> Goes to Hell begins with Jason, like, getting blown up by a, I don't know, military brigade, SWAT team oh, or something. Okay. They, like, blow him to pieces, and then uh, they take the pieces to a, a coroner's office, I think, and then the coroner, like, starts looking at his heart and then eats it and then becomes Jason. Th this is what I recall happening. So, I mean, he has faced real force before, but I think only in that instance. Um, so, no, he, he has never, like, done battle with a, with a tough guy like Peter Minza. And so, so this is pretty much new. All right. Um, there's another character in this, Gecko. Is Gecko a space marine as well? I don't remember. Okay. See, she didn't stand out to me all that much in, in previous viewings of the, of the film, but she stood out this time because if you've spent any amount of time during the pandemic watching Canadian comedy series on Netflix like I have, then you will recognize Gecko, played by Amanda Bruegel, born 1978, as Pastor Nina from Kim's Convenience and also as the character Sonia from Working Moms, another popular uh, Canadian uh, uh, comedy that aired on Netflix here in the States. Oh, I haven't seen either of those shows. Yeah, yeah, she's a she's a talented comedic actor. I mean, she uh -huh. doesn't really get to do that in this film. Um, she's just another space marine killed by Jason in this. But yeah, she's been in a ton of things. She's uh, rec she recently played Rita Blue on thirty five episodes of The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. She was on the the Snowpiercer TV series, which I watched, but I, I you know I don't remember her from that as much. Uh, she was on Orphan Black. And on the movie front, she was in Suicide Squad. And she's going to be in Brandon Cronenberg's upcoming Infinity Pool, among others. That's a movie title, not a... Uh, not, no, no, not yet. Yeah, not just his Infinity Pool okay. in his backyard. He, yeah, he has it on that, um, that website where you rent out your pools to people. And she's going to, <laughs> she's going to rent it. So it's, it's exciting. Hey, but you just said the name Cronenberg. And we've been talking about Canada nonstop. What, 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 what's going on here? 
Oh, well, yes. David Cronenberg himself shows up playing uh, Dr. Wimmer or Dr. Vimmer. I can't remember how they pronounced it. You know, if they say his character's name, I don't even recall it because it's just David Cronenberg on screen. And the character, I think, is David Cronenberg. Yeah, this is. Yeah, David Cronenberg, the legendary Canadian director, born 1943. We talked all about David Cronenberg, the director, last week on our Scanners episode. But this week we're talking about David Cronenberg, the actor. (laughs) (laughs) How uh, did he end up in this? I'm not sure. But, I mean, it is Canadian. And he just shows up at the beginning to say, "I." It, it's almost as if he got wind this film was being made near his house. And he's like, I would like to be skewered by Jason. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does seem to be the Isaac connection here, the connection yeah. to the director. But um, uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting to look at Cronenberg's acting credentials over the years, because as is often the case with directors, you do find him cameoing in his own works uh, as early as 75 Shivers. Uh, he also did a cameo in John Landis's 1985 film, Into the Night. But his first larger role in another director's film was his fun turn as Dr. Philip K. Decker in Clive Barker's 1990 dark fantasy horror film, Nightbreed. He's super creepy in that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that really put him more on the radar for everyone else. They're like, oh, Cronenberg is like he can... He can actually act. He has a nice screen presence. And and uh, and I thought, yeah, I think that film Nightbreed is a very interesting one to sort of tease apart and figure out. It has a lot of I think a lot of strong things going for it that have been appreciated over the years. It's a it's Barker's uh, adaptation of his own novella, Cabal. But, yeah, Cronenberg has a great role in that is this uh, this uh this doctor that seems to be very much on the side of our troubled protagonist, but then turns out to be a, um, a psychopath. Yeah. He's, uh, incredibly unsettling in that movie. He does a, a kind of soft spoken performance. That's, uh, I guess how Cronenberg actually talks in real life as well, but it's, <laughs> it's effectively unsettling. Um, and, oh, Hey, we, we got another Cronenberg connection, right? A character actor we talked about in last week's episode on scanners. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Robert A. Silverman uh, is in this one playing Dieter Perez. Uh, Silverman, born 1943. Uh, Like we said last week, yes, a Cronenberg regular, uh, another Canadian actor. He played the scanner artist in Scanners. Mm -hmm. Who makes the big head sculpture that he goes inside to talk to uh, the main character in. Yeah, he plays a great weirdo. This film's no exception, but his part is essentially a Zoom call from bed. Like he's 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 almost literally phoning it in in a modern sense, though they clearly had to set this up uh, to, to get the Zoom experience uh, mm-hmm. in 2001. And then finally, the music in this film is uh, by the score is by Harry Manfredini, born 1943. You know, when we watch Jason Takes Manhattan, I think we, or at least I kind of bemoaned the fact that Fred Molin did the music instead of Harry uh, Manfredini, who scored the original Friday the 13th score and also created that excellent uh, Friday the 13th Part 3 song that was a legit disco hit in 1982. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we're like, oh, why couldn't Manfredini be on board for this one? Well, Manfredini did compose the score for Jason X. And from, from, from my taste, it ranges from forgettably mediocre and serviceable to just actively annoying. I think I can say it without feeling bad because he's had a lot of success in other ways and and done great stuff. The music in this movie is awful, just terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that bit from the score for part three is amazing. And this is not. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. 
eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, you ready to talk about the plot? Let's do it. Because it's a Friday the 13th movie, same thing came up in Jason Takes Manhattan. We're not going to do every scene in this movie. A lot of it is formulaic slasher stuff. But we're going to talk about the setup and then some broad themes and interesting uh, things that stick out. So the opening credits play over what seems to be a vision of Dante's Inferno. I, uh, the, they're suggesting some kind of demonic cavern deep in the earth. It's full of spires and mountains, gloomy clouds and castle ramparts, and everything is dark and dank and bursting with fire. 
And uh, this is a particular kind of murky, ugly 2001 CGI, a look that I very much associate with horror movies and video games of the early to mid 2000s. Think of um, CGI environments where everything's kind of muddled and muddy and hard to see, and mm. the, the dominant colors are like brown and orange, and there are modeled texture mats over everything, modeled like M-O-T-T-L-E-D. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think of uh, like Silent Hill or Resident Evil 4. Do you know what I mean with these these animated yeah. textures? Yeah, definitely on the Silent Hill front. I, I spent a lot of time in the, in the Silent Hill game, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And here I think it might be useful to uh, refer back to Roger Ebert's review to see to what extent we agree or disagree with his comments. So Ebert writes about the effects in this movie. He says, quote, with Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones opening in mid-May, there's been a lot of talk lately about how good computer generated special effects have become. I was I was like, what citation needed? But then I remember people used to talk about the Star Wars prequels this way. I mean, no, I'm not trying to knock on the Star Wars prequels again. They have their detractors and their defenders and and their, their pluses and minuses to them. But I, I think one of the things I do not love about the Star Wars prequels is the kind of uh, weightlessness of the CGI environments in them. Yeah, yeah. There's certainly plenty of things that, that still hold up well on those films, but there are some some areas that could use a fresh coat of digital paint if such a thing were possible. Yeah, but but uh, Ebert goes on, on the basis of the effects in Jason X and the much more entertaining Scorpion King, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we could also chat about how bad they are getting, referring to computer-generated mm-hmm. effects. Perhaps audiences do not require realistic illusions, but simply the illusion of realistic illusions. Shabby special effects can have their own charm. And you know what? That took an interesting turn. And I agree with that last sentence in multiple ways, because I I often not only enjoy, but especially seek out a certain kind of artful, non-realistic practical effect, uh, non-realistic practical effects as their own art form. And I think you can appreciate them. In the same way you would appreciate like the design of a theater set. So if you go to see a play with good sets, usually the set is not going to conform to strict realism. It's not like tricking you into thinking that that's a real tree. Instead, it will lightly suggest a location in an aesthetically pleasing way. And non-realistic special effects in movies can be pleasing, even if you wouldn't mistake them for like real footage of whatever phenomenon they're attempting to suggest. The effects in Jason X have a totally different kind of charm. They're certainly not realistic looking exactly. I mean, they're those, you know, 2001 era CGI effects. Uh, there's there's one notable exception that looks pretty convincing. They are definitely not beautiful, again, except for maybe one exception in a perverse way. Instead, they are pleasing in, I would say, exactly the same way that it is pleasing to look at tasteless but elaborately rendered tattoos. Like, imagine a guy with a full-back Shrek tattoo. That's kind of <laughs> what the effects in this movie are like. It's like, I'm not saying it's, like, beautiful, but it's also kind of not something I want to stop looking at. It's interesting, because I, I definitely went into this film with that Ebert review and his critique of the special effects in the forefront of my mind. And so I was ready to hate on them. But for the most part, I, I did not have that experience with them. And I think part of it, and I very much agree with, with 
with with Eber's general take on effects here. I think the thing is that a lot of the special effects that we see in Jason X, the purely digital effects, are of spaceships moving through space. Yeah. And in that, it's detached enough from human interaction that it can look a little uh, raw. It can look a little rough by our modern standpoint. And it doesn't really... Um, throw me out of the experience of watching the movie. Likewise, mm-hmm. there's a scene where we see a couple of big alien looking monsters in this. And then we realize pretty quickly that they are simulations on like a hollow deck environment. Yeah. And therefore we're like, okay, well, of course they don't look 100% realistic. This is a simulation. And so that distance makes sense. Yeah. They look kind of like an ugly computer game. And in fact, I didn't mind that scene at all. I kind of like that. Yeah. So yeah, I guess by and large, it would be different if there was an actual digital thing. Like if Jason were digital, that yes. would be like, it's, it's hard to imagine just how ugly this movie would be. If for some <laughs> illogical reason, they're like, we don't need Kane Hoder. We're going to simulate Jason virtually. Like imagine all yeah. the things we can do now if he's a pure digital effect. And, and yeah, it's uh, th- that would be horrible. Well, I feel like that, even that, if done right, could succeed on the Shrek tattoo level, but not not so much on the other levels. Yeah, I, I, you know, you get into, I guess, the pure digital effects, you get into the, the weightlessness problem. Like, how yeah. is it interacting with the environment? How are people interacting with that? And I mean, that's a problem even in really well done digital effects movies. Or not, maybe not a problem, but it's, it's for instance, n- very noticeable if you go back and watch the Harry Potter films. Mm-hmm. Like, watch the films with Dobie the Elf in it, Dobie being a digital effect. Watch how other uh, actors interact with that character. Or, or more particularly, watch how Gary Oldman acts opposite the house elf versus everyone else. Like Oldman brings that character to life in a way uh, that no one else in, in the, in the films for the most part is able to do. And it's due to just how talented Oldman was mm-hmm. uh, talented in a way you cannot expect of just an average performer. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I mean, like, like Gary Oldman, I'm sure you could just put opposite a brick wall and have him imagine that that wall is giving a, a performance for him to react to. Right. But you give any actor, say, a rubber snake to wrestle with, Mm -hmm. and they're probably going to do something you can get into. Like there's a certain physical reality there that even if they're only going, you know, half energy on it, you can still appreciate. Yeah. It's a bride of the monster. Bela Lugosi wrestling with the octopus arms. Yeah. Let me know it's not a real octopus arm, but it's like it's being touched. It's physical. We can see it. And therefore, it's easier for us to buy. It's not that you look at it and say, that looks real. It's that you look at it and say, I like that. Yeah, you look at it and you go, on, on another level, this is truth. What I'm seeing, what I'm observing, experiencing is truth. Okay, but anyway, so you start with this like uh, sort of hideous CGI environment. And, and you zoom out to reveal that this like fire-blasting hell cavern is actually the inside of Jason's head. It was all like the... <laughs> It was all like the sort of the veins in uh, or the arteries, whatever those are, in, in Jason's eyeball. Mm. And uh, so for the credit sequence, we see Jason is restrained in a laboratory and scientists are looming over him with hypodermic needles. They're doing Jasonology. And this is the beginning premise of, of the film that, you know, they're doing studies on him, I guess. It, it's never established how he was captured. Yeah, yeah. They mentioned that they have tried multiple ways to kill him. And I didn't cross check the ways they mentioned with how they actually kill him in other films. So as far as I know, those were all within a laboratory setting. 
Yeah, I, I think that when she's talking, uh, when the main character in this movie is talking about how he was captured and the, they tried to destroy him, that's all off screen. That's not like what happened in the movies before. Okay. So there's a new scene, big dark room with Jason on a raised platform. He's like secured by locks and um, we see text on the screen in the Terminator font saying Crystal Lake Research Facility, subject to <laughs> Jason Voorhees, status, awaiting cryogenic suspension. And Jason's just staring at the floor, expressionless. You can see his you know, one of his eyes through the uh, hockey mask. But then, oh, is that eye going to drift up and look at somebody? There's a guard nearby. Uh, I don't know. This opening is just really, like, out of nowhere and throws you straight into this uh, absurd situation. And I like that. Yeah, this whole opening could be a short film. Of uh, and and it would it would still be richly amusing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get a big kick out of a research facility being established at Crystal Lake to properly study the localized phenomenon that is Jason Voorhees. Yeah, it's kind of like if they established the Elm Street Sleep Studies Lab or the Haddonfield Gunshot Survivability Workshop. You know. Yeah, yes. Yes. Uh, it's it's a good concept. So. We see Jason there, like his his eye locks on the bumbling guard and then kind of squints. Like, <laughs> like he's like, I'm going to get you. And the guard gets creeped out and throws a blanket over Jason. Uh, and then next thing, oh, here comes David Cronenberg. I mean, just here he is. Uh, he's walking down a corridor, a shiny corridor with a platoon of military dudes. And a lady pops into frame. This is Dr. Rowan. Her last name, according to Wikipedia, is LaFontaine. They just call Mm. her Rowan in the movie. But Dr. Rowan LaFontaine. This is uh, Alexa Doig. And she she asks David Cronenberg, hey, you know, what are you doing? He says he's going to take the specimen. And she says, wait, you can't do that. The, The cryostasis facility isn't ready yet. And David Cronenberg is like, well, we're not going to freeze him. I want him soft. I'm taking him to Scranton, (laughs) which uh, was a real laugh out loud moment for us. I think he says to the Scranton facility. Mm. So what's at the Scranton facility? Well, they are going to study Jason Voorhees' regeneration ability. Think of all the medical advances we could unlock if we turn regular sick people into Jason Voorhees's. Now, there's a whole movie concept they just leave right there on the table. Yep. Now, Rowan objects to this because uh, this would involve, I guess, just taking Jason down the highway in a truck or something. And she mm-hmm. says, moving him over open country. Or she asks, are you willing to risk the deaths of innocent civilians for your research? And David says, yes. <laughs> Uh, but he, you know, he assures her, he's like, look, don't worry about it. I've got a bunch of uh, unnamed military grunts with me, so it's impossible for anything to go wrong. Yeah, he's like, don't worry about it. He's he's already not your problem anymore. Yeah, I'm surrounded by extras. How could you imagine something bad could happen? <laughs> so anyway, uh, David Cronenberg and all his buddies go in to, to get the meat. And they go into the big room. Uh, there's the figure covered in a blanket, just like Jason was when we saw him last. But, uh-oh, reveal. They pull the blanket off, and it's the guard, not Jason. Jason jumps up out of nowhere. He he massacres all the military dudes. He throws a spear through David Cronenberg's stomach. Uh, Rowan observes this carnage, and then there's a chase. And she cleverly tricks Jason into the cryogenic freezing chamber, which, by the way, she just said was not ready yet. So I don't know when mm-hmm. it got ready. Um, but she like tricks him in there, slams the door on him and initiates the freezing sequence. So she won, right? Movie over. Yeah. Like, like I say, if they'd ended it right here, 
this would have been a pretty fun little Jason gets frozen short film. But nope, Jason uh, takes his machete and stabs through the wall of the freezer. And so he kind of <laughs> pokes her with the machete and she's like, Ugh, and falls over injured. But then the, what, I guess the cold air or the freezer gas starts gushing out of the chamber through the machete hole into the room. And then another door locks to contain the leak. So Jason gets frozen and then Rowan gets frozen as well. They're both frozen. And then seemingly the whole facility is just abandoned for uh, uh, the duration of life on Earth. Yeah, nobody ever checks to see what happened in there. Because we cut to hundreds of years later and we get a copy of the opening scene in Aliens. Deep salvage team pries into the facility to check it out. Except it's not a deep salvage team. It's a professor and a group of college students and a robot or cyborg named K.M., And so they come in looking around at everything and they're consulting the robot. KM has information on everything. So they're like, what's this? You know, they're consulting her about the make and model of the cryogenic freezer in the room. Mm -hmm. And I noticed continuity error because she says that this uh, freezer was manufactured in the year 2010. Mm -hmm. But later in the movie, they say that uh, the movie is taking place. It's in the year 2455. And she says that is 455 years after she was frozen. So they say that the freezer was manufactured 10 years after she was frozen. Hmm. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's wrong. I'm I'm disappointed that Jason X didn't do its, <laughs> its math better here. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, let's open up the freezer. They do. And it's Jason in a raised machete pose. I guess he froze like that. They say humanoid, but organic composition unclear. And then they're like, what's that on his face? And this will begin a uh, trend of future <laughs> jokes in the movie. There's a lot of just jokes about like, oh, the future is very far from now. Uh, so they say, well, this is facial armor used in a sport that was outlawed in 2024. <laughs> so... As of this year, we've only got like another year or two left of hockey. All right. Strap in for that. But there are a lot of jokes like this in the movie. It's like at one point, um, uh, Alexa Doig says, uh, uh, you never forget this. It's just like riding a bike. And one of the characters says, what's a bike? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, it, it's a fun, it's a fun trope to, to use in your cryogenic time travel film. So anyway, they discover Jason and they discover Rowan, both of them, and they realize that she can be thawed out. Um, oh, and also one of the student guys gets his arm chopped off when Ice Jason tips over and falls on him machete first, which is a pretty hilarious moment. Yeah, it's, it's a great moment. And uh, I like how they, they're established. They've already alluded to this with the whole you can't carry Jason cross country. <laughs> the idea that, that Jason is so dangerous that he's still extremely dangerous and potentially lethal, even while he's completely inert. Like He can just fall over and kill people. Right. And it, fortunately uh, for the, the guy, this is the 25th century. So like his arms off now, but there's nanomedicine on board the ship that can easily repair a severed arm. Uh, the nanobots will heal all. And they do. Yeah. You just pour a little gray goo on there and it'll do its work. So they bring Rowan and Jason, both frozen, on board the spaceship and they blast off. Uh, oh, and by the way, on on the way out, we see that the Earth in this timeline is now a horrible wasteland and humans are now based on a planet called Earth 2. Earth kind of looks similar to the inside of Jason's head. It's like in the hundreds of years since then, Earth became Jason's soul. It's, you know, stormy, brown and orange CGI desert. Uh, oh, and also Earth orbit is just thick with space junk. It kind of mirrors what you were talking about with the Friday the 13th franchise, though. Like everything has just been just been ridden to death. We yeah. just completely drained it of all its resources and, and, and enjoyment and life. And this is what we're left with. We've got to have a new beginning on Earth 2. And Jason X is kind of that Earth 2 for the franchise. Yeah, okay. I can see that. 
Uh, so anyway, there's a bunch of cliche ridden chatter from the various characters who we meet as the as the students and the frozen people come back on the ship. And you got the three sort of buckets of characters like it's not just the students. You have the space college students who are, you know, your standard Friday the 13th type characters. But then you also have space truckers and space marines. Yeah, and I guess the space truckers, they kind of they're like the spacing guild of this of this uh, this world, this universe. They they control movement between the worlds. They've got a monopoly on it. Uh, you got the the space marines, they've got to protect these these the earth two interest when you go to the lawless world of earth one. And then yeah, the space college students, it's the 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 college that's paying for this whole thing. This is a a journey of exploration. This Jason retrieval was done with grant money. Yeah. Yeah. Part of, again, part of the Earth One Studies program. Well, anyway, all of these buckets of characters, uh, again, they behave pretty much exactly as horror conventions dictate. Uh, I'm not going to pretend there's a lot of originality here. It's sort of, you know, it's B horror movies by the books, except it's in a kind of funny way, smashing several very different B horror genres into one movie. So you've got kind of an alien clone with the space truckers. You've got mm-hmm. an aliens clone with the space Marines. And then you've just got straight up Friday the 13th. Yeah. And th- there are a lot of characters in this. And I, 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 I did, we didn't have time to really mention them all. And for some of them, Jason X is probably their most notable picture, but uh, again, a lot of Canadian actors, and I think most most of the most of them did pretty good with what they had to work with in Jason X. Yeah. So we're almost done with the setup here, but we got Jason. They bring him in. He's lying on an operating table, thawing out in the ship's laboratory, just <laughs> dripping slime all over the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, while while Rowan is revived from cryo sleep uh, by the nanobots, which they call the ants, and she wakes up. She's instantly lucid. They tell her it's the year twenty four fifty five, and she says. Uh, that's over 400 years in the future. <laughs> well, she's she's in shock. She's in shock. Yeah. There is a scene where the greedy scheming professor gets on a video call with Robert Silverman, the guy from Scanners. Uh, and uh, the, the Silverman's, I think he's playing like a, like a fence or something, like mm-hmm. a guy who will market a stolen artifacts for the professor that he loots from 21st century Earth. And so the professor is like, I've got a gold mine. And Silverman says, a box of DVDs is not a gold mine. I can't move them. <laughs> Suggesting that he's been repeatedly showing up with DVDs DVDs recovered from from the dead earth. Uh, And I don't know exactly how to interpret this line. Is it like, ooh, is this, you know, like old media that people want to watch? Or is it more like this would be a valuable artifact the way we would regard like medieval manuscripts today? Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are, Are they watching their cinemas? Or, or is it just the, the the physical artifact, like kind of like a Jerry or something, you know? Cinemas, yes. I was thinking of overdrawn at the memory bank. Is it like DVDs are illegal in the future and people seek them out from old Earth? Yeah, and if so, like, is it kind of like a, a Jerry Maguire situation where, like, the vast majority of the CDs are just one or two different pictures? It's whatever was mass produced off of a particular blockbuster. I want these movies from 2001. Get me a copy of Domestic Disturbance starring John Travolta. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I guess the joke here, though, is that DVDs were still really hot in in 2001 and didn't start declining until years later. I I guess. I don't know. Hmm. 
Uh, but anyway, the professor is like, nope, not DVDs. I've got a couple of frozen people from more than 400 years ago. And Silverman is unimpressed. Uh, apparently, this future timeline is just flooded with people who have been reanimated from hundreds of years earlier. Uh, Rowan now is going to be the oldest ever revived, but that's just uh, not interesting to Silverman. Yeah. How's he going to make any money off of that? But then he looks at the file. He's like, wait a second. This other one you recovered. That's Jason Voorhees. He killed nearly 200 people and simply disappeared without a trace. He could be worth a fortune to the right buyer. <laughs> Why? I don't know. But the greedy professor, he wants money. So he's uh, he's going to get the money by selling Jason's, like this, this slimy uh, hockey mask guy, to somebody. Even that that presents possibilities that could have been their own movie, like a collector of of strange and grotesque things from the old earth. They want to, you know, to put put Jason Voorhees on display mm-hmm. uh, in their in their mansion, their Earth Two mansion. Like that would be a, a whole movie right there. Or you could go back on that whole regeneration lab thing. Like, oh yeah, the, the people on Earth Two they want to live forever. They've been working on it. They've got those nanobots, but nothing beats good old fashioned supernatural immortality. That's true. And we could learn how to harness that supernatural immortality for ourselves. We could make Jason nanobots. <laughs> what if Jason became a swarm of nanobots? That would oh, be God. There you go. Oh, I'm glad they did not go in that direction purely for the effects, because that is exactly the, the, the full digital Jason that we did not want to see. That would be the Scorpion King Jason that, that the effects department here was not ready for and the viewers were not ready for either. Okay, here I think we're uh, just going to uh, skip more lightly over some of the other things that happen in the film. But one thing we got to discuss is a particular uh, gory special effect because while the effects in Jason X are not generally considered a highlight of the series, not generally considered all that great. There is one notable exception. The first uh, space youth that Jason kills after waking up, uh, this is a scene that even Roger Ebert seems impressed by, and this is the the frozen face scene. Yeah, this is a quality kill, to be sure. And I I think we, we probably referenced this one in our Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode on freezing and shattering organic materials. But basically what happens here, it's like when Jason first wakes up, he, he grabs a, a, a lady and he like shoves her face into liquid nitrogen and then smashes her head like an ice cube. Yeah, it's gross and effective, but also not too bloody by virtue of all the blood being frozen. Right. Yes. It's uh, it's it's cuboid instead of uh, instead of liquidy. Yeah. Yeah. And new territory for Jason. Trying new things. Right after that, there is what I thought is actually a genuinely quite funny moment where Jason goes to the tray next to the operating table in this lab mm-hmm. where he's thawing out. And you see, I guess he's looking at you think he's looking at like scalpels or whatever. And then he picks up a surgical machete. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> OK. Um, next thing. The level of self-awareness of this movie. So Jason X is not a fully self-aware parody like, you know, the Scream movies or Cabin in the Woods or something where the characters would openly talk about the the tropes and acknowledge them and sort of critique them. Uh, But it is the first movie in the Friday the 13th series that has partial elements of this kind. And this did come out after Scream went mainstream with these observations about horror movies, for example, the the sort of implied uh, punitive morality of many slasher movies where characters seem to be punished for uh, uh, for trivial sins like premarital sex or drug use. And this this is openly discussed by characters in Scream. 
But then in Jason X, we see this knowledge kind of incorporated as a knowing parody. Like you see Jason become there. There are cuts where he's like enraged and powered up for violence when characters break one of these slasher rules of conduct, when they uh, like drink or engage in brutally cringy sex scenes. Awful. Mm hmm. But here, this reaction of Jason's is not done implicitly as it is in earlier movies, but explicitly, I think, for intentional comedy. I think here they are poking fun at the previous movies in this series. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. There's a certain amount of self-awareness uh, to the picture. And then and they also go for sort of broader comedy uh, other places in the picture plenty of times with mixed results. Like there's a nice moment where Mince's character, the, the sergeant, um, initially seems to be killed by Jason. Uh, Jason stabs him through it, like stabs him, I think, from behind, like through a wall, through his chest. And Sergeant Brodsky here says, it's going to take more than a poke in the ribs to put down this old dog. And then Jason stabs him through the chest again. And he goes, yeah, that ought to do it. <laughs> that that <laughs> and line, seemingly dies. Yeah, that was good. Though, actually, he comes back after that. He does. But, uh, but that line was good enough that I actually thought that was probably a Peter Mensa improv. Yeah, it might have been. There's also a scene on the other end of the spectrum. There's this scene uh, that we can refer to tastefully as KM14 wants nipples too, um, <laughs> where she's talking with her boyfriend, the techie, about how she wishes to have nipples like other uh, female members of the crew. And it seems like it, it's not an actually funny scene. The, the comedy falls flat. And it seems at first like it's going to be super cringy in establishing the relationship between the fembot and the technician. But then it actually lands in this sort of like sweeter area where it's, it's made clear that their relationship is not exploitive. It's not like a purely physical relationship, but it is um, it's, it's very consensual and very genuine. And these this robot and this nerd love each other. It seems like true love. Yeah. Okay, one more thing this movie does get into is virtual reality. I think this is one area where the movie actually stumbled across a really good idea, one that had the potential to be much more interesting and funny than it was, though it's used for some good moments. Jason interacting with essentially the holodeck from Star Trek. What happens when you put an unstoppable undead monster into a virtual environment? Yeah, they they bust this out and it's kind of thought provoking. Like how long could they have contained Jason Voorhees with more preparation? They end up throwing it together as a, a as, as like a stalling tactic uh, so they can try and escape. But but what if they had actually prepared for it? Like what if this had been the plan upon thawing him out? And then also, what are the ethics of creating a never ending kill sim to contain an undying killer? Well, I mean, if he actually doesn't hurt anybody, I would say the ethics are good compared to him getting loose and hurting people, right? So, Well, it depends, I guess, on the NPCs in that sim, right? Getting into territory we've discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before. Like, oh, like, it, it, are the holograms conscious? <laughs> yeah, or they on what level are they feeling pain? I don't know. Mm, but okay. then, again, if it's preventing Jason from killing hundreds of people in the real world, then I don't know. I guess I didn't take it as implying that the holograms were conscious, but that uh, would be its own kind of horror movie, I guess. Oh, we have created a like a literal uh, digitally created hell. Yeah, it's a, this is often called the Jason X problem in philosophy. <laughs> I imagine some of you out there have studied it. But I do think, I mean, like that you could have made a whole like uh, interesting horror movie out of an idea like this, like monster versus illusion. Yeah. 
I mean, it really almost kind of creates a, you could have, it's kind of like a Jurassic Park scenario, because obviously that's where you'd have to go in, in such a film, is that something would break the illusion. The illusion would break down and the monster would, the Jason or whatever you have in there would bust loose and you'd have to somehow subdue him again. I mean, it does kind of deal with the nature of Jason that gets discussed, which is that, like, you can't destroy Jason. He always comes back, but you can, like, freeze him for a period of time. Like, you can do things to sort of prevent him from acting, but you can never destroy him. Yeah, you can you can move him closer to a massive black hole. That, that would be, I guess, the thing to do. Yeah. One last thing uh, before we finish up. Uber Jason. I mean, it's oh, yeah, they're in the trailer. It's the, uh, advertised. Jason is, of course, going to get swarmed by nanobots after he's been uh, uh, taken out of commission by KM, the robot. She does some like gun foo on him and and blows him up sort of. And then the nanobots in the medical bay. Oh, aren't they sweet? Aren't they helpful? They just restore him and make him better than ever. And even, I guess, like doubly invulnerable. He's more invulnerable than he's ever been before. Yeah, they. I guess the way to read this is the nanobots are trying to do what they normally do, repair a damaged, injured human being. But this is not a human being. His physiology is weird. His flesh is weird. He's like an undead thing. And they don't really seem to know how to handle this. So they end up building Uber Jason. Like even his hockey mask is like weirdly incorporated into his his head in a way that, that I think really works. But it's like computer error here, processing error. Uh, we think we've healed him. And this is the result. This is one of these like uh, AI alignment problems. Yeah. <laughs> All you did was program me to help people, so I helped Jason. <laughs> so, yeah, the basic structure of the film yeah, ends up being Jason thaws out, rampages, is killed. Nanobots restore him to Uber Jason uh, form and then battles everyone again. And finally, we get down to the survivors uh, making a break for it. And we also get this great scene where uh, Jason is flying through space at the uh, essentially the escape pod. But then here comes Mensa. Here comes Sergeant Brodsky and essentially like suplexes Jason Voorhees through the atmosphere of Earth 2. And they seemingly burn up as they fall through uh, the atmosphere to this new yeah. world. And, the, the, and they appear as a shooting star going through the night sky. Yeah. And we see like some camp counselors on Earth 2 being like, oh, wow, it's beautiful. Let's go over, check it out. Yeah. So we're left with this weird, and I think it totally works. It's a nice moment at the end where it's like Earth 2 was a new start. It was, we put behind all of our, our awfulness from Earth 1, but what have we done? We've gone out and we've brought Jason Voorhees to Earth 2, a planet that is clearly not ready for him. And thus concludes the tale of Jason X. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We and, and like you said, we this film was not successful enough in, in any way for there to be a proper follow-up to Jason X. Not that we needed one. Jason X delivers on all its promise. It does everything it set out to do, seemingly. Um, but Ebert, even in his review, he's like, people are probably going to love it, and we're probably going to get Jason X too. But we didn't get that. This is all we have. Yep, yep. He he was even lamenting while imagining that audiences would eat this up that uh it would not be called Jason 11, it would be called Jason X2 or Jason <laughs> X part 2, I think he said. Oh man. I I sign me up. I would have seen it. I mean, it's kind of like the the counterintuitive uh uh ordering of like the Rambo movies, doesn't it go like uh First Blood, First Blood Part 2, Rambo, then Rambo 3, then Rambo? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I I feel like they could have done X Part Two, and it might have been good. But I don't know if they could do it now. Like like the alchemy of something like this has to be just right. You have to have just the right balance, and and they managed to deliver on that for the most part with Jason X. If you make Jason X Part Two and you go too serious or you go too silly with it, and it, it would just all fall apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is an artifact, much like a case of DVDs discovered by uh, by grave robbers from the year 2001. It is an artifact of a previous time that uh, we should study and understand. All right. Well, help us to study and understand this artifact. If you out there have thoughts on Jason X and its place in the Friday the 13th film franchise, if you have memories of seeing it for the first time on DVD, on VHS, or in the theater itself, I always love a good uh, theater viewing account. Uh, write in. Let us know. We would love to hear from you. Just a reminder that uh, we're primarily a science podcast here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, we set aside most serious concerns and we just talk about a weird film like Jason X. And I mentioned Letterboxd earlier. If you go to letterboxd.com, it's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D.com, you can look us up. Weird House is our username, and we have an ongoing list there of all the films, all 100 now, that we have featured on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, to share something interesting, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.